You know, that's a, that last uh, stanza, let me never outlive my love to thee, you know, that would, uh, that would prove well to pray every day, uh, right? That's what perseverance of the saints is all about, is God preserves us, uh, knowing the Father's heart, you know, that how could we forsake him? Where else are we going to go, church? <laughs> I, I, you know, I ask that rhetorically, but I'm waiting for someone to give me an answer that satisfies. There is no place else to go. Your money cannot do it. Your nation cannot do it. The armor of flesh can't do it. Horses and chariots can't do it. F-22 fighters, Abram tanks. I don't care what it is. Nothing but the living God. That's the only thing that satisfies. That's the only thing. That's the only refuge, the only shelter we have. It comes clear and clear every day, doesn't it, church? Each day with another passing, we see with, with, with greater clarity. May he continue to do so. You know, there's, there's much sorrow with wisdom, but you know what? There's wisdom. And to have wisdom is more valuable than rubies, more valuable than diamonds. Search it with all your heart. Let's do that now. Let's turn in God's holy word to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3, chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. My intentions were to uh, go through verse 11, but uh, as you're going to see, this is a meaty text, particularly as it relates to human sexuality. And I, I think we need to camp here for a while. Uh, I think we live in such a perverse uh, generation uh, there is great perversity, great misunderstanding. We've gotten to the place where the prohibitions in God's word uh, have to be um, preached with all their fullness. Right? We don't even know what a woman is. Church, that's where we are. Our leaders. I'm not talking about Joe down the street. I'm talking about the people who, who oversee and have been given authority, delegated authority as our rulers. As the jurist, as the, uh, the executive body, legislative, but we don't know what a woman is. You know, at, at times you're angry about that, and other times you cry. How sad is that? He made them male and female in his own image. He made them. Uh, that we wouldn't know what a woman is. We have a whole generation of kids following behind us adults we need to make sure that we're teaching them we're catechizing them in the word of god the doctrines of our faith right see you're always being catechized right you're being catechized by google facebook and tiktok instagram or you're being catechized by the word of god where do you spend your time what do you value what do you treasure well, Colossians 3, last time we picked up on this idea that we have a new identity in Jesus Christ, right? That will preach in this culture today, it's starving for definition, starving for, for who controls the, the lexicon, right? Who, who gets to decide what is, is, <laughs> right? Well, we have a lexicon, we have God's holy an infallible word. And as Christians, we saw that we have died with Christ, we've been risen with Christ, and now we, the church, the body of Christ, are God's new humanity. We're God's redo, if you will, in Jesus Christ, the, the last Adam, the one who's the life-giving spirit. Therefore, we are to seek the things above, to, to set our minds Right, our affections, our, our loves on those things above, not on the things that are of the earth. For we've died to the dominion of sin. Sin is no longer your master. Sin is no longer your Lord. Now, that doesn't mean you're not going to sin. You're going to sin. But sin will not characterize your life now. You'll not be marked by iniquity. The fragrance of your life will not be one of death and sin and iniquity but one of life and new creation and joy. 
And now that our lives are hidden in Jesus Christ, what does it mean to to live out that reality? How does this hiddenness that we have in Jesus Christ manifest itself? Do we have a truncated gospel? Uh, You know, we shortchange it, right? We believe in the doctrine of justification, right? I'm going to say this in my sermon. I'm going to get ahead of myself here a little bit. But, you know, I like sinning. God likes forgiving. Man, it's a pretty good gig, right? This This is a good thing. If that's your understanding of the gospel, you're, you're sadly mistaken. You have no idea of the holiness of the living God. He's holy. He's beautiful in holiness. And he calls us to be holy as he's holy. Let's look at this text. Chapter 3, 5 through 7, but I want to set the indicative before I get to the imperative because if you begin to think about the imperative, the commands of God, divorced from the great indicatives of God, you, you don't have Christianity anymore. You have religion. You've you got to get anchored and moored in the indicative. What has God done for you? Who are you now? In Jesus Christ. How can I sin? How can I live in sin? If I'm a child of God. That should be the rhetorical question we ask ourselves every morning when we arise. Chapter, one, chapter 3 verse 1. If then or therefore you, since you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died. This is an indicative. It's not an imperative. He's not telling you to do anything. He's just saying, this is what the, the matter of the, the situation, this is the state of affairs. You have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now we get to the imperative. Put to death. This is the command. This is the summons. Because you've died in Christ, to the dominion of sin, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On the account of these, or because of these, these five nouns that I've just listed for you, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked. They used to characterize you when you were living in them. But now, having died in Christ, being raised with Christ, to the dominion of sin, you must put them all away. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and infallible word. Let us go and ask what Rick asked, right, that the Holy Spirit would come and make this word live, right, make it live. You don't want a talking head. There are better talking heads than me, that's for sure. We need to meet with God in His Word. May He bless it. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank You for Your Holy Word. We thank You that You don't leave us as orphans. You don't abandon us. You don't justify us just to to continue in sin. That You don't pardon sin and its guilt and still leave us under the dominion and the power of reigning sin. But sin has been defeated. Its power has been dethroned. We have a new master because we're married to another. We're not under the Torah, the law. We're under Jesus Christ. And that law now, written by the finger of God in stone in the old covenant, is now written by the finger of God on our heart, the heart of flesh. So Lord, enable us to be who you say we are. We pray this in the name, the sweetest name that ever graced the lips of any man, woman, or child, Jesus Christ. Amen. Jesus' words in Matthew 5, 29 through 30 are rather shocking. 
they're very disturbing. Let me read them to you. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Now we know that the Lord Jesus here is not calling for us to self-mutilate, right? That's not what he's calling for. But he does want us to understand the seriousness of sin. The sinfulness of sin, if you will. And its consequences. He's calling us as Christians... to be ready to use drastic measures with remaining sin, the, the sin that so easily entangles us, the grave clothes that we're always seeking to put off but often have a hard time doing because we like them so much. <laughs> well, saints, this is exactly what Paul's doing here. He, he wants us to understand what it means for believers to have died and been raised with Jesus Christ in the newness of life. John Owen tells the child of God, be killing sin or sin's going to be killing you. It's like like shaving, Luther would say. Today I shaved this morning. My face's not baby soft, but it's somewhat soft. Tomorrow, not so much. There'll be new manifestations. That will have to be dealt with. Sin that yet remains for the Christian. Well, this morning, uh, I just want to look at 527, a summons to kill sin. A summons to kill sin. Just one point. You're thinking, oh, well, maybe I'll get out a little early. Yep. No, afraid not. I love you. I'm going to feed you the word. A summons to kill sin, 527. Paul begins by calling for an execution. Calling the Christian to be an assassin. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. It's a present or an heiress imperative. Do business with it. There's a footnote in the ESV in your members, right? In your body. The, the way that you sin. The way that sin manifests itself in our lives. Through our bodies, right? That's why we're to put our bodies on the altar, in view of God's mercies, might please Him with our bodies. I might use my eyes for pure things, and my hands for holy things, and my feet for righteous things. Therefore, Christian, in light of what God has done for you in Christ, you've died, your life is now hidden in Him. You can no longer be characterized by sin. Kill it! If you're like me, and killing sin is much easier said than done. I dare say many of us here today have not had to kill many things, right? A hundred years ago, if we wanted to eat, we had to kill it, particularly meat. There may be an occasional spider or insect that I'll ask Catherine to kill for me. I hate insects. I don't know. They're gross. This week, I had to kill a mouse. I had a mouse in my car. Yeah. Yeah. Tell you about it after church. And yet, killing, killing is the language that Paul uses here when it comes to the Christian's remaining sin, right? Dealing with it in our lives. He calls us not to negotiate with it. A lot of times we want to negotiate with sin because we enjoy it. Right? That old Adamic nature enjoys it. We take pleasure in it. It comes, comes naturally to us like a fish to water. Son of Adam, daughter of Eve to sin. Yeah. That's... But rather we must slay it. And let me say this, just a caveat. This doesn't go towards my sermon time. Today if you're here and you're not a Christian, if you're not a Christian... You're not born of God. You're, you're still dead in your sin. 
you're still under the dominion, the, the mastery, the reign of sin. You're still enslaved to sin's power and dominion, awaiting a, a, a fiery judgment of the living God. So today, the, the message for you is come to Christ. Right? Come to Christ. Paul here is not giving some ethical advice on how to be a better you, right? How to be a better you. That's not what he's saying here. No, the instruction here is for those who've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, those who've been born again in Jesus Christ, those who have died to the domain and the power of sin and have been resurrected in a new humanity. And Jesus Christ, that's, what he's, that's who he's speaking to here. Because you've been raised, church, get busy killing sin. You see, remaining sin is not something we can be indifferent about, nor can we hide behind a, a truncated gospel, right? As I said, God loves forgiving. I like sinning. It's a pretty good gig, right? You know, I'm surprised how many evangelicals have this view of cheap grace, A cross that has no power to, to sanctify. That somehow I can still not only participate in the grave clothes and the sins that once marked me, that somehow I can now be identified by them. Oh, the perversity of the human heart. It's desperately wicked. Who can know it? No, friends. Not only is sin unacceptable and damnable before God. It's destructive to everything it touches. No one would expect a, a patient to ignore the, the presence of cancer in their body. If, if I go to the doctor this week and he tells me, well, Pastor Bullock or Mr. Bullock, I'm sorry, you have, you have pancreatic cancer. It's, it's stage four. What do you think I'm going to do? I don't know what I'm going to do, but I hope I seek the face of God when I hear those words fall from his lips. Praise him, yet though he slay me. We can't ignore it. You see, sin must be rooted out, must be put to death. The Holy Spirit is clear. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly. In verse 2, you remember a couple of weeks ago, Paul has told us not to set our minds on those things that are on the earth. And we briefly looked in chapter 3, verse 5. He defines what is earthly or what is worldly. Right? That which characterizes this present age. Not those who belong to Christ, but those who belong to this present evil age. What characterizes them? That we're to put to death this imperative, this summons, this command to be who we are. And Paul gives us a list of five nouns. And all five focus primarily on sexual sins. You see, the, the pagan world in which Christianity was birthed was a, was a culture very similar to ours. There, there was great sexual immorality. It was rampant. It was everywhere. Well, let's look at these five nouns. First, Sexual morality. Beloved, the power of Christ's death and resurrection changes. Now listen, it changes your sex life. You know that. It defines for us what biblical human sexuality is. This first noun is the noun Porneia. It's the word from which we get our word, what? Pornography, right? Porneia. And this first noun sets the context from which the next four will flow out of porneia. Porneia may be defined as any sexual intercourse outside heterosexual marriage. The word is often used to refer to various sexual sins. We need to kill porneia. 
We need to put it to death. We, we don't negotiate with it. We're not so much fools to think that somehow we can handle it. I'm in control here. You see, friends, just a couple of decades ago, Christians were not regarded as weird for teaching that sex belonged exclusively to marriage between one man and one woman as defined by the Word of God. This is because we were influenced by centuries of biblical teaching, particularly as it relates to human sexuality. Well, friends, church, that train has long, long ago left the station. Our ethical Christian underpinnings have all been but abandoned. Christians today are not only considered strange as they were in the first century, they're people in some sectors of our society today who not only think it's strange that you would be busy killing porneia, sexual morality in your life, there's some who would advocate for your arrest, for your incarceration, because you hold to a biblical ethic regarding sexuality. You see, you will be accused of standing in the way of uh, authentic Sexual expression. Who are you to tell me what to do? You Christians are always against human happiness. You're suppressing my freedom to be me. I I can't be my authentic self. This is the mantra. This is the refrain we hear. But nothing could be further from the truth. The Bible does not have a negative view about sex. Far from it. God created it. Sex is a powerful gift of God. Fathers, you need to be teaching your children these things. It's a gift. (laughs) A gift of God. God created it. It's so good that God created a context where its purpose can be fully enjoyed. And should be enjoyed. If you doubt me, go home and read the Song of Solomon. God created it. It's good. Very good. You see, in the covenant of marriage, sex binds the man and the woman together in a lifetime commitment. When it's misused, it does incalculable damage and harm, right? As the Proverbs say, can can a man hold fire to his chest and not be burned? (laughs) That's absurd. Of course he can't. When our sexuality is not used within the biblical parameters in which God created it to be used for our good and His glory, for the marriage bed is holy. Right? Isn't that beautiful? Don't you love that, married couples? It's holy. Holy like He is holy. When it's not used properly, people get hurt. John Woodhouse, whose commentary I've been using, who I've enjoyed immensely, says this, You don't need to know much about life to know something of the powerful goodness of sex in the intended context in which God gave it, and something of the damage done by sex when it is misused. You don't need to know a lot. Talk with a spouse who's been cheated on by their husband or respective wife. Come sit with me in my office. That counseling session. Sit with a child who's been abandoned because the father didn't take sin seriously. That home that's been split in two. 
How about the wives who've been harmed and incredibly hurt by husbands using pornography? Pornography is like acid in your marriage. It will destroy it to its very foundation. It will eat it. It will metastasize and destroy you and your marriage. Sex outside of marriage does great harm. But Christian, the victory is yours in Jesus Christ. You've died with Christ. You've been raised with Christ. Therefore, in light of the grand indicative, here's the imperative, be busy killing sin that remains. Get busy slaying it, suffocating it, starving it, doing whatever you have to do to put it to death. Some of you are playing fast and loose with sin. Remaining sin. A man often reproved will soon be cut off and without remedy. Why do I say, in my mind, Pastor, you're a Calvinist. Oh, yeah, that's right. I am a Calvinist. <laughs> that's why I'm saying it. For without holiness, no man will see the Lord. Be who you are. Put it to death. Slay it. That's the first thing Paul says here is you to kill everything that spoils the goodness of sex. Who would have thought that? That's what Paul says. The first thing on the list you're to put to death is everything that would spoil the goodness, the inherent beauty and holiness of marital sex between one one man and one woman. Second, kill impurity. The Greek word here for impurity connotes any unspecified sexual sin. It's often used in relation to sexual morality. It's used in Romans 1, and all of these, by the way, are used in Romans 1. Romans 1.24. The context there is the exchanging the truth of God for a lie. We're told that, therefore, because they've exchanged this Glory of God for images, the truth of God for a lie. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity. That's the word. To the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Paul says, kill it. You need to kill it in Jesus Christ, in the power of the gospel, in the power of the blood of Christ, put it to death. Put it to death. Third, Kill lust. The ESV translates this word passion. This word also carries a, a connotation, a negative connotation of, of uh, sexual morality. In Romans 1.26, Paul uses it, this term to describe those who do not know God. And Paul says here, because you've died with Christ, because you've been raised with Christ, because your life is now hidden with Christ, And one day it will appear with him in glory. Slay it. Put it to death. (laughs) Fourth, kill evil desire. This can refer to sinful desire in general, but in context here it refers to illicit sexual passion. This is unbridled and misdirected lust. Choke it. Choke it out. Kill it. Slay it. Take the knife to it. Do whatever you have to do to put it to death. Fifth, covetousness, which is idolatry. Notice how Paul traces wrong sexual behavior back to a desire to take what is not lawfully yours. It hasn't been given to you. It it hasn't been allocated to you by the king. And yet you take it. An unbridled passion unharnessed from the yoke of its creator. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? Says Pharaoh. Says my heart. Says your heart. 
when you take these things that are not lawfully yours. And did you notice the progression? As the, as the five nouns are laid out, he, he peels back layer after layer. It's, it's like he's peeling the onion, right, to go deeper and deeper. Because Paul is not so consumed with outward behavior as he is with what? The heart. For where do these things come from? From the wickedness of the heart. He's not calling us to behavior modification. You see, in the back of all the sexual perversion lies covetousness, which is idolatry. You see, the problem of sexual morality is a problem of worship. How many times have we heard Pastor Sloan tell us that? Keep telling us, Pastor Sloan. It's a problem of worship. Worship. Not finding satisfaction solely in the treasure of heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. But looking to other cisterns rather than the cistern of your wife, men, to satisfy you. Beloved, what we see here in all five of these nouns is a perversion of human sexuality where something that God created good and pure to be enjoyed is twisted and distorted to serve self, the idol of self. Living for self-indulgent pleasure rather than for God and His glory. My chief end is no longer to glorify Him and to enjoy Him, but to glorify me and to enjoy me. Whatever my heart wants, whatever my eyes look upon. You see, that's the heart of every man, woman, and child in Adam. That's, that's why you need more than behavior modification. You must be born again to see the kingdom of God. You must be born of the Spirit. For the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. The flesh of man cannot give birth to the Spirit. Well, where does all of this lead? What about the Christian who's not busy killing sin? Ephesians 5, 5, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral and impure, who is covetousness, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. No inheritance. Beloved, how we need to hear what God is saying. God is calling His church to holiness, sexual purity, and these perverted days and times in which we find ourselves. When Christians, professing Christians, fall into sexual morality, nothing but harm is done. Families, marriages, future marriages. Let me speak there for just a moment. If you're a young person, you're not married. Let's just be real. Let's be real, real. You're, you're dabbling in pornography. You know what's going to happen? You're going to find yourself back in my office with your wife. Maybe a year, maybe two years, maybe ten years after you're married. You're going to find yourself back in my office, and we're going to be talking about how this pornography has is, is marred you. It's shaped you. You, you, you. you are your past in many ways. Now, sure, you can be forgiven. You can be washed and lily white in Jesus Christ, but those things stain you. They, they mark you. They, they go with you. The, the circumstances, the ramifications go. Though your sin be pardoned, the consequences still yet remain. And above all, the greatest dishonor is done to Christ's name, Ezekiel 36, 20. Because of you, God's name is blasphemed. Right? The world's accusation rings true. You Christians are no different than the world. It's just a joke, man. You're playing games. A little intellectual sophistry on Sunday morning. 
No power in anything you say. People will sometimes ask why the Bible cares so much about sexual behavior. Christopher Hitchens, you know him? You remember him? He was the, the great antagonist, the great atheist who, who, who sought to ridicule and mock God in his word. He said, why is God so obsessed with my bedroom? <laughs> Doesn't he have other things to do? Friends, when you stop and think about You think about this reality and the nature of human sexuality. It's pretty obvious, right? Friends, we're sexual beings. You are a sexual being. God made us male and female. And as we go around distorting and messing up life as sinners, it's, it's pretty high on the list of things to mess up is our sexuality. And remember this. A few weeks ago I said this. Lest you think I'm just trying to advocate you from some moral, exhortive, pull yourself up in your own bootstraps. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. And one of the biggest lies that sin and the devil are always telling us is that that the motives of the heart don't matter. All I need to do is clean myself up on the outside. My blue blazer, my nice tie, my blue shirt on Sunday morning to look respectable. Then somehow I am respectable. But what lies deep down within is a heart full of iniquity and sin and covetousness. But the Holy Spirit is making this progression from outward sexual morality all the way to covetousness, reminding us that the gospel is really more than just about behavior modification. Now, it's true we have to be ruthless, right? We have to be drastic. Matthew 18, if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better to enter life crippled than with two hands and be thrown into eternal fire where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched and the thirst is not assuaged. Better. Like that guy, right, a few years ago. Remember this? Remember the guy who was out uh, climbing? I think Levi might know this story. He was out climbing. He gets trapped. His arm gets stuck in a rock. He has to make a decision, kids. He thinks to himself, if I don't get out of here, I'm going to what? Die. He got to the place in the calculation of his own existence existentially where he said, it'd be better off if I cut my own arm off and escape with my life than to remain here and die. (laughs) I can't even fathom the man who's engaged that crossroad. And yet, that's what he did. Subsequently, he goes on, writes the book. And there's a movie and so forth. I don't know the name of it. But I just remember that story thinking, wow, what a powerful illustration. If my right hand is going to cause me to sin, I'm going to cut it off. Because the calculus here is eternity. Eternity. I'm going to get covenant eyes. I'll get covenant eyes times 12. I, I, God, just give me, help me to hate it. To hate it like you hate it. To see what it costs you to deal with it. Oh, to see sin, Father, some way, somehow the way that you see it. You see, beloved, the Holy Spirit here is also reminding us not only are we ruthless and drastic with sin, He's reminding us that the root of the problem is the heart. And what we need is a heart surgeon. (laughs) Is there such a one in the Bible who's a heart surgeon? I think Luke says he's a physician. I think that would qualify. We We need a heart surgeon because that's the problem. 
So what are the tools that the surgeon needs? He, he needs a scalpel. He, he needs means. He, he needs instruments. He, he needs an arsenal to, to help us slice in, to put it to death, to starve it, to put it out. Think of the men who've, who, who got sideways really quick because they played fast and loose with sin. How about Saul? Right? Saul, you're to kill them all. Right? Spare nothing. Devote it all to the Lord. Saul waits and he waits and he waits. The Lord doesn't come. So then he starts to offer strange fire for himself. He goes to battle. He spares what he believes in his own eyes. Because he's worshiping, not according to the regular principle of God's word, he's worshiping to the regular principle of his own heart. And he spares what God said to destroy. And Samuel walks into the camp and what does he hear? Hello, excuse me, I, I think I hear some sheep there in the back there. I think that's a problem. So the kingdoms take from him. Or, or Solomon, David's son, the wisest man, whose heart was led astray by many women, 980. <laughs> now, you know, one, one is sufficient, right? I love my one. She loves me. But Solomon's heart went astray. Well, what are the tools the surgeon has given how about word, sacrament, and prayer, right? How about that? You think that's going to get a lot of publications, a lot of, a lot of books written? You think I'll get a, you know, a, a bunch of speaking gigs on that one? How are you going to have your hearts change if you neglect the means that God has given to change it? Faith comes by what? Hearing, hearing the Word of God. Are you in the Word of God daily? If you neglect the word in prayer, you're neglecting your soul. You need to be daily in the word and before the throne of grace. Well, I don't feel like it. Who cares what you feel like? You think that excuse is going to work when you come before God? I didn't feel like it. No, I don't think so. How about public worship as a, as a tool? Again, not very, wow, I never thought of that. Hebrews 10, 24 to 25. And let us consider how to, who to stir up, how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet some, meet together as at the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Saints, make it a priority to be in worship. Avail yourself to the means, the tools God has promised to mature you, to grow you up. Thirdly, you need each other. If you do not have a, a band of brothers or a brand of sisters in Jesus Christ who really love you, who are holding you accountable, then I would suggest that you go out and try to secure one as fast as you can. Do you have a real friend? Someone who will speak truth when it's not convenient. Proverbs 27, 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Do you have any real friends? Proverbs eleven four. for lack of guidance, a people fail, but victory is won through many advisors. You're thinking to yourself, well, you know, I want to be wise. Well, you know what you need to do? It's very simple. Walk with the wise. You want to be wise? Then begin to walk with the wise. Begin to surround yourself with people who are wise, who are desiring eternal things. Find a wise, mature brother or sister in Christ who will call you out when you need it. Be willing to risk. Be willing to be vulnerable. Be willing to be thought a sinner who needs a cross and a Savior and blood and bread and wine and preach word. Be willing to be such a one. You see, saints, sin thrives in the darkness. Bring it into the light and watch it die. Confess your sins to one another. James 5.16 And pray for one another that you may be made whole. 
The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And in case if you doubt the danger of sin and its consequences, you're saying, Pastor Bullock, you're overplayed your hand. <laughs> I think you've overstated the matter. Well, look at verse 6. Look at verse 6. You think it's serious? You think putting to sin to death is serious? The Holy Spirit says, on account of these, what? What are the these? What's the antecedent? Verse 5. Sexual morality, impurity, lust, passion. And because on the account of these, or because of these, the wrath of God is coming. As an unpalatable as the wrath of God may be to our modern sensibilities, Paul here employs the wrath of God to motivate. We can't do that. We're New Testament Christians. We can't use wrath to motivate, can we? Well, Paul does. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. see, he's not ashamed to use this reality to encourage Christians to holiness. You see, friends, the unbelieving world thinks there's nothing wrong with premarital sex, extramarital sex, homosexual sex between consenting adults. As long as it's consenting, you see, that's the only inhibitor to the world, isn't it? Now think about it, isn't that? Isn't that the only inhibitor? If we're both consenting, then why not? But the Bible is clear. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. It's coming. And according to Romans 1, it's present. It's presently being made manifest. Right now, God's wrath is being made manifest. How? Pastor Bullock, you know, I don't see the earth opening up and so forth. What's on? Well, God gives them over. We start to identify with sexual morality impurity, evil desire, lust and passion, and so forth and so on. He gives us over. But for those hidden in Christ, the wrath of God has passed you by. You were in the domain of darkness, but now you've been translated into the kingdom of the Son, of Jesus Christ. In Christ, you've left that way, the way that is bringing the wrath of God. Look at verse 7. Our denomination needs to hear this, right? We've got a teaching elder in the Missouri Presbytery who needs to hear it. In these, what are the these? What's the antecedent to these? Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and covetousness. You too, what? what's it say there, church? Once walked. What does that mean? It means... It, you used to be characterized by that. You, you used to be known by that. That's what your identity was found in that. I, I'm a sexual immoral. I'm a homosexual. I'm whatever. You once walked when you were living in them. The implication is you're no longer living in them. Those sins that once marked you. And, and kids, let me say this to you. If, if I haven't lost my job already, let me continue, please. Kids, left to yourself. Left to yourself, apart from the grace of God, there go you. The reason you are spared or have been spared. Maybe you're saying, well, I don't remember ever doing those things. <laughs> you need to thank God. You need to take the example that... Mr. Hutton gave us giving a prayer of adoration and thanksgiving and supplication and again to thank God. Thank you, Father, for sparing me. Thank you. Thank you, Father. Thank you that I, I, I don't know what, what Pastor Bullock knows about it. I know it's serious because I know because of these things the wrath of God is coming. It's coming. It's coming like a freight train. And if you listen closely, you'll hear the train coming. I'm serious. It's coming. It's coming. When a culture gets to the place when it can't even define a woman, it's coming. It's coming. It's coming. 
You see, these sins, these five nouns, they characterize the life of those outside of Christ. Those who have not died and been raised with Christ. Such were some of you, but Christian, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in Jesus Christ. How can you continue in sin? How can you? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Church, I leave you with this. Take off the grave clothes. Take off the grave clothes. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, now appears, then you will also appear with Him. The summons to kill sin sounds pretty drastic, right? Plucking out eyes, cutting off arms, feet. But remember this. It's nothing compared to the drastic measure that the Father went through to deal with your sin in giving Jesus Christ. Church, it's, it's this reality, the reality of Jesus Christ, His life, His death, and His resurrection. It's that reality for you and for our sakes and the attending power of it that's going to enable you to be killing your sin so it will not be killing you. May God give us grace. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for the clarity of your word. We thank you that it's unambiguous, it's perspicuous, and that it speaks to our hearts directly. But we thank you that we are no longer in Adam, no longer characterized by sexual immorality but that we've been translated into Jesus Christ, the last Adam. And now we're characterized by newness of life. For any man be in Christ, new creation. Lord, enable us now, as those who live between the already and the not yet, enable us by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ raised from the dead to slay sin to put to death by the Spirit the deeds of the flesh. That it would not just be some theological abstraction out there in the ether, but it would be the truth, the power of God in our very lives that the Lamb might receive the reward of His sufferings, that our lives would adorn the gospel of the One who loved us and gave Himself for us, who now ever lives to make intercession for us now. We pray this in His holy name, for His glory and our eternal good. Amen.